Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Some community leaders are concerned about who police decide to arrest. Who's told when they tell the police, hey, you know, get out of my face. Told like, hey, you know, kid, you better sober up or you're going to be in trouble. Or told like, you know, get over here, I'm putting the cuffs on you, you know. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll investigate New Hampshire's criminal justice system. We'll also get a reality check on the solar energy boom. If you can't predict it, what you're forced to do is to run the grid more conservatively. And what that means in terms of air pollution and money is that you have power plants on standby. Yeah, that means fossil fuel plants. Our energy series, The Big Switch, continues. And ever wonder who keeps up trails deep in the forests of the White Mountains? We have to maintain a, a, a certain mystique about us, right? I mean, we don't want the whole friggin' world knowing how good this is, because they'll all want to do it. We'll meet the Trail Fixin' Crew next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, high-capacity batteries, smart water heaters, ice bears. We'll look at some old and new technologies for New England's energy system. But first, New England governors got together in Boston this week to talk about some of those very smart ideas for renewable energy. They heard from experts and talked about working together to save energy costs and carbon emissions. But the news coverage of the conference was hijacked by Maine Governor Paul LePage. He was already under fire for comments about drugs coming into his state and who was being arrested for those drugs. He was asked about it by State House News Service. What I said was this, meth lab arrests are a white, they're Mainers. The heroin fentanyl arrests are not white people. They're Hispanic and they're black and they're from Lowell, uh, Lowell and Lawrence, Massachusetts, Waterbury, Connecticut, the Bronx and Brooklyn. So I didn't make up the rules. <laughs> that's how it turns out, but that's a fact. It's a fact. I, I don't know what you do with, with, you know, what do you want me to lie? His comments drew a strong rebuke from his fellow governors, including Connecticut's Dan Malloy. I think it is a great disservice uh, to uh, look at this as a racial issue. It is not. It should not be confused as one. Uh, and we need to be careful about uh, not mixing race uh, into this particular issue. But the fact is, issues of race and law enforcement are entwined in a way that is impossible to entangle right now. On our first show, we looked at data that shows how black and Hispanic motorists are pulled over at much higher rates than white drivers in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Vermont. Today, reporter Emily Corwin of New Hampshire Public Radio shares the findings of her investigation into arrest and incarceration rates in that state's most populous and most diverse county. And it shows that not only are black and Hispanic residents far more likely to face arrest, but they're also more likely to be held in jail before their trials. Emily, welcome to Next. Hi. Nice to be here. First of all, for those of us who aren't familiar with Hillsborough County, New Hampshire, tell us a little bit about the place. Why did you focus your data collection efforts there? Well, I would have loved to have done a totally statewide analysis, but it is too hard to get data from each autonomous county jail. So I focused on Hillsborough. It's the most populous 
County in New Hampshire. It has the state's two biggest cities, Manchester and Nashua. And it's the most diverse and it's the most quickly diversifying part of the state. And it's a quickly growing part of the state. When you say diverse, how much of the population in that county is black or Hispanic? Blacks and Hispanics are 8% of Hillsborough County, which is significantly more than the state, which is 5% black or Hispanic. So how do the arrest numbers of blacks and Hispanics compare to the proportion of the population they make up? It's not really just arrests. It's at at the jail level, too. The disparity doubles almost at each step of the system. So when we looked at the numbers, we found that, you know, while the population, as I said, in Hillsborough County is 8 percent black and Hispanic, 16 percent of arrests in the county are black or Hispanic people. And then if you look at the jail for the county, 27 percent of those who are jailed pretrial are black or Hispanic. So, uh, again, the the arrest numbers are quite a bit higher. But then as you go through the system, as you found, Emily, the numbers just get bigger and bigger and more more desperate. Right, right. Blacks, for example, are three times more likely than whites to be arrested and six times more likely than whites to be jailed in Hillsborough County. It's pretty close to what it is across New Hampshire, but it's significantly more disproportionate than the average for the nation. Is this part of the state known for having uh, good relations, bad relations between police and communities of color by and large? Nashua, the the southernmost city, has a reputation from the past of excessive policing of black neighborhoods. Police say that that coincided with getting gangs under control. But also the previous chief, before the one who's currently in place, was known for being pretty apathetic, uh, maybe even insensitive to issues around race and policing. There's a new chief uh, who came in a year ago, Andrew Lavoie, and the community came to him immediately upon his becoming chief and said, you know, we want to talk about issues around race and policing and violence. This is something that, you know, we've been wanting to talk about with the chief for a long time. And he was much more receptive. You know, as Chief Lavoie and members of the community have begun having these these conversations, it's done two things. It's created the channels of communication, which I think everybody's very pleased about. It's also brought into a pretty stark relief some of the differences. I think some people of color and, and maybe maybe even some officers feel like, you know, it, it feels like communicating over a chasm. Um, Linda Gathright is one of the people who organized these monthly meetings. She was telling me about a conversation she had with the current chief, Andrew Lavoy. He said, well, I just want the group to know that um, we arrested more white people than we did black people, okay? And my point to you, you should. You forget where we live. In a place like New Hampshire, where people of color are, you know, in Hillsborough County, 8% of the population, the gross numbers are always going to be smaller for people of color. The question is, you know, how do they compare to the population of people of color? So, Emily, what was uh, Chief Lavoie's reaction to, to this data? Um, so it's interesting. He's so receptive to, to the idea of opening up channels of conversation. Um, he's concerned about how his force is perceived. Uh, but but hearing about disparities in arrests didn't seem to make him think that policies need to be changed. We arrest people for breaking the law. I don't care if they're a Martian. There is no criteria in enforcing the law that talks about your race, nor is it ever considered. I mean, we arrest people that break the law. It doesn't matter what race they are. So 
you know, you can sort of hear these these conflicted things. He's having these community conversations. People are saying, you know, at times we think that you're arresting people of color more than you arrest uh, white people. The data backs that up. Not so relevant for him. You know, that that can be a point of contention with, with people in the community in Manchester, which is maybe 25 minutes north, uh, the biggest city in New Hampshire. There is a NAACP chapter. The leader of that chapter's name is Willard Lett. He gets maybe 12 calls a year, he says, about law enforcement and race issues in this part of the state. And he pointed out there's a lot of reasons that people of color may be being arrested more. You know, there's discretion. Um, There's how resources are distributed, Um, you know, people having opportunities or not having opportunities. There's the question of, like, where police are putting their officers throughout the day. Is it in the black neighborhood or the Hispanic neighborhood or is it, you know, is it in the suburbs? And here's here's a bite of some comments he made to me. You know, who gets arrested? Who's told when they tell the police, hey, you know, get out of my face, told like, hey, you know, kid, you better sober up or you're going to be in trouble or told like, you know, get over here. I'm putting the cuffs on you. You know, you also looked at pretrial detention. This goes far beyond the arrest numbers, Emily, and I think it's pretty important part of your story. This is really about who gets to go home and who has to wait in jail for a trial. It's another instance where you find a fairly large racial disparity. That's right. That's right. New Hampshire has a statute, a law that says if a reasonable person would would not deem you a threat to society or a flight risk, a judge or bail commissioner has to give you PR bail, which means personal recognizance. It means you can go home um, until your hearings. Talking to Gilles Bissonnette, who's the legal director of New Hampshire's ACLU, he was telling me about the impact that being detained, especially pre-trial when there's no conviction yet, that has a huge impact on families, on individuals, um, on their future, even, he was saying, if it's just for 24 hours. Being subjected to pre-trial detention, particularly if the individual is low income and committed a nonviolent offense, say a drug offense, can have a devastating effect. It can cause job losses, evictions. It could cause issues um, with custody of children. And all of these issues exist and could have a, an awful impact on a person, even if that criminal case is ultimately dismissed or dropped. Okay, so Emily, here's an important thing I think we need to get to. We've talked about the racial disparities in the numbers that you found. Clearly, by the numbers, uh, a greater percentage of black and Hispanic people in this county are being arrested. Law enforcement officers say, well, look, we arrest people who are doing crimes. So my question to you is, what do we know about the crimes people are being charged with? There are people being charged with all different kinds of crimes, and the disparity seems to be consistent throughout. But there are specific crimes for which there are, you know, particularly extreme sort of degrees of disparity. And often those are not violent crimes. Those are nonviolent crimes such as, you know, drug crimes, especially um Disorderly conduct, for example, whites were 83 percent of all arrests in the county, but only 75 percent of those who are arrested for disorderly conduct. And when you think about like what exactly disorderly conduct entails, there's a lot of discretion there. And it's it's not a very severe charge. It's not a very um, specific charge. When we look at specific charges for which people are incarcerated pre-trial, um, the most disproportionate 
crimes for which people are jailed were resisting arrest. Criminal threatening is an, is another one. It, it was not just nonviolent charges. There there were also violent charges like assault in that list, but these were the top the top ones. When we heard from Chief Lavoie in Nashua a bit ago, he said he didn't really think a change needed to be made in his policing. Did you talk to anyone in the justice system who had a different view from the chief? The police chief in Manchester, the state's biggest city, his name's Nick Willard. And, you know, at first when I gave him this data, when I showed it to him, he said, you know, well, surely these people of color are coming up from Massachusetts. <laughs> um, are you sure, you know, are you sure it's the residents um, of, of Manchester who are being disproportionately arrested. He then sent me his data, which includes residents. I analyzed that and found that, no, the disproportionate arrests are, you know, just the same if you look only at Manchester residents. It's not a matter of people coming up from Massachusetts. And when I showed him that, he was he was moved by it. He said, you know, well, this is very concerning and I really want to understand it more. So uh, let's listen to it to something from him. I think it's important to, for me as a police chief when I want to understand these numbers, um, what types of arrests are being made, um, who are the victims, who's reporting it. Is it um, a police officer uh, making a car stop and doing it of his own um, productivity, or is it a victim who's calling to make a report? So, you know, between Willard's, uh, this is Nick Willard, the chief in Manchester, between his interest clearly in understanding these numbers more, and then the community meetings that are taking place in Nashua with Chief Lavoy, there's clearly an effort under underway um, in southern New Hampshire to, to make some progress here. But, you know, there are still members of the community in southern New Hampshire who feel like what they really need is a show of solidarity. And that's different, I think, than opening up channels of conversation. That's different than um, analyzing numbers. So Woolard Lett, who again is the um, heads up the Manchester NAACP, he, he really laid this out pretty well. Let's listen to, to one last uh, bite from him. Last August, as part of um, a regional NAACP initiative, there were 5K walks held in a number of cities in New England. And we did one here in Manchester. And during the course of this walk, you know, we stopped several places. And in each stop, I uh, tried to arrange for the opportunity of our co-sponsors, our, our partners, to have a chance to say something, you know. And we decided we were going to stop at the police station as we were making our circuit. And I asked the police chief, I said, hey, we, we're doing this walk. Do We call it the 5K Walk for Justice to support responsible policing and protest police misconduct. You want to come out and talk to the people on the march? And he declined. Sort of like, you know, I think my men would feel like I was criticizing them if I participated in something like this. So what exactly was he hoping to accomplish there? I could, I could understand, Emily, a, a police chief not wanting to, uh, to speak out against his officers, but clearly Willard Lett was, was looking for something from, from the chief. Right. And I think Willard Lett's point is you don't have to speak out against your officers to speak out against police misconduct. If you'd like to read more about Emily Corwin's investigation into racial disparities in New England's justice system, go to nextnewengland.org. Thanks, Emily, for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, we'll look at the big switch that's happening right now in New England's energy system. It's next.
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. New England has set very high goals for itself to reduce carbon emissions and curb climate change. It has very high electric bills and a power grid that needs constant attention and upgrades. You've probably seen wind or solar projects go up somewhere near you, or you've heard about battles over where to put projects like these. As it turns out, all this development of renewables hasn't really changed the energy mix all that much yet, but it is now changing fast. That's part of our series, The Big Switch, New England's Energy Moment. Here to walk us through some of the challenges and new technologies in renewable energy is Prabhakar Singh. He's director of the Center for Clean Energy Engineering at the University of Connecticut. Welcome to Next. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Do you share with me the idea that this is an important moment right now in New England's energy future? Indeed, John. Uh, this is uh, one of the most important topics, uh, not only here in, in New England, but also uh, at, uh, at the national level and uh, I must say also at international level. We're going to talk a little bit about solar first. And solar projects have been going up all over the region. Mm -hmm. Let's actually listen to reporter John Dillon for a moment there. He helps us to set up one of the, the issues we've been dealing with because as we see the rise of new solar projects, there are also some complications that come with that. Well, we got a couple outages going on. Uh, one is from a uh, tree coming down, breaking a pole. Inside the control room of the Vermont Electric Cooperative, operator Danny McMullen is keeping a close eye on screens that show the electrons flowing in and out of the co-op's northern Vermont territory. And then we got another one with some underground faulty that crews are working on, hopefully to have restored, you know, weather practice uh, this forenoon. And so it's fairly quiet this morning you know, compared to what it can be at times. It's cloudy and rainy this morning, so the instruments aren't showing much output from solar installations. Jeff Wright is the co-op's chief operating officer. He says there's one major benefit from solar power, at least in the summer. It really does relieve pressure from the grid during the day when the system's peaking. But during a recent sweltering week in August, Wright and the members of his co-op saw the limitations and the potential downside of solar generation. To understand what happened, you have to understand how power companies pay for their transmission costs. These prices are set annually and are pegged to how much the utility uses on that one time of the year when it draws the most electricity from the grid. Little swings in demand can make a big difference in transmission costs. That swing for us could be four, five, six hundred thousand dollars just between those two days. And that bill ultimately gets passed on to customers. So every power company pays obsessive attention to that day of peak use. They even ask customers to turn off appliances like dryers or dishwashers until the peak is passed. Solar systems can help offset that peak demand in the summer, but they did not help in Vermont during that hot week in August. The problem was it was sunny in Massachusetts where solar arrays all over the state helped reduce the strain on the grid. But in Vermont, clouds and rain reduced the solar output, so Massachusetts will save on transmission costs for the year, while Vermont will not. It's a really interesting push-pull because when it's hot and it's sunny, it's nice to have less load to manage. But when you start to have those regional issues and one's doing a lot of generation, one's not, and you're starting to set your transmission costs based on your load allocation, it gets really volatile. And I, I think in the future, that might become worse. But it's definitely something that nobody has really talked about yet. 
And that's why we're talking about it here on Next. That's a report from Vermont Public Radio's John Dillon as part of our energy series, The Big Switch. And we're here with Prabhakar Singh from the University of Connecticut. So first of all, before we get into some of the technical aspects of that story and some of the problems that solar can cause, I know you're not a policy guy. You're the yeah. you're the engineer. But there is a policy question here, and it has to do with how we set the prices for electricity. I mean, what we're hearing about is essentially a small electric company that is worried that they're going to take a bath on the price of electricity because they have a really hot day that it's rainy and cloudy. Massachusetts has a hot day that it's sunny, and all of a sudden they can't get the power that they need onto the grid. Are we looking at this the wrong way in terms of the way we pay for electricity? In a way, yes. Uh, we need to do a lot of integration. Uh, we don't have control. We need to understand the weather prediction uh, in, in a much better way than what we have today. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, University of Vermont is working with IBM on uh, weather prediction. And that's very interesting, right? Because if we're going to rely mm -hmm. on wind yep. and we're going to rely yep. on sun for our power, that's something that we have to do. But I can only imagine that technological advance being good for all of us. It's going to be good for farmers. It's going to be good for people who worry about storms on the coast. Better weather prediction is something that will be good for all of us. Indeed, it is. Uh, and it is a very complicated topic. And we do need uh, uh, giants like IBM and or uh, other uh, bigger companies, General Electric, who are truly multidisciplinary in nature to look into this, this aspect. That's number one. Number two that, uh, that we also need is storage. You mentioned in the beginning that we have to rely on leveling this fluctuation. Okay? There will be fluctuation because of intermittency uh, in, in renewable, whether it's a day, night, uh, solar, or wind speed. How do we make it a stable, make it a stable uh, output uh, to customer? And that is transparent and seamless. We have many technologies that is coming into uh, a marketplace, i.e. batteries, smaller batteries, larger batteries. Again, uh, Vermont is a good, a good example. They are testing a lot of uh, Tesla's uh, uh, wall mount uh, power pack, okay, six, seven kilowatt uh, uh, in, in size. Uh, it's a little more expensive right now. Uh, I will go to next level where we can look at uh, large hundreds of kilowatts. Uh, type of storage, kilowatt hour uh, type of storage, where we can provide uh, a stable power to a large community or large uh, buildings. And are you talking about a, a really big battery? And not not in, in a bigger size, but bigger capacity. Maybe it's a trailer uh, type uh, uh, size, but it has a megawatt hour type capacity. Uh, that's just one idea. Um, we're going to hear a little bit of a story from a Vermont Public Radio reporter, Kathleen Masterson. Mm -hmm. Batteries seem very high-tech, certainly the kind that have large storage capacity and we would put in our basement. But there's this very humble device in everyone's basement, and it's called a water heater. And people in Vermont are trying to do just that, use it as a storage device. Let's listen to Kathleen's story. Okay. First, to understand just how dramatically renewable energy is changing the grid, here's how the grid has worked for the past hundred years. It was sort of like the world of television in the 1950s when there were only a handful of channels. Tonight, from the Ed Sullivan Theater on Broadway. Back then, all the programming was coming top-down from a few broadcasters. Well, that's how the electric grid has worked. Grid operators scheduled when to turn on several large power plants to send energy down wires into homes. But now the grid looks more like the Internet. 
Use is unpredictable, sporadic with big spikes, and anyone, seriously, almost anyone, can upload their own content. Oh my gosh, it is a double rainbow. I cannot believe it. And the grid's turning into that. Homeowners can put up solar panels and then send that energy back onto the grid from all over. And it just wasn't built for that. For an example, let's go someplace sunnier than New England, a place where there were all kinds of financial incentives for renewable energy. So solar panels popped up all over Hawaii. And that idea of power flowing the wrong way, that happened. And it caused fuses to break and blackouts to happen in Hawaii. The the system was just stressed very, very quickly. That's Mass Almasalki, an electrical engineer at the University of Vermont. And he says it's not just the backwards flow that's challenging, but wind and solar are sporadic and unpredictable. They can't just be turned on and off whenever we need power. But his startup is trying to flip the paradigm. Here's Almasalki's colleague and co-founder, Paul Heinz. The big idea is that when there's energy available, you should use it. And when there's not energy available, you should not use it. (laughs) should wait until a better time. And so that's the big idea that we're trying to solve. On its face, it's a simple concept. Almasalki, Heinz, and two other co-workers are developing software that would allow common home appliances to effectively store these sporadic bursts of energy that come from wind and solar but all without the homeowner noticing any difference. Everything would still work when you flip on the switch. They're starting by programming that big tank in your basement, the ubiquitous water heater. Basically, kind of using this as a a virtual battery. So it's like taking all these water heaters and turning them into batteries that can store the electricity, store surplus electricity from the grid. Right now, water heaters turn on and off at pre-programmed times to stay warm. And of course, it turns on after you take a shower to heat back up the tank. But what if your home devices were smart? What if your water heater could respond to a signal from the grid and turn on just to absorb some extra energy because all of a sudden it got sunny and solar power surged? Then later in the day during peak electricity use time, it wouldn't need to turn on. It would still be hot. We're basically designing a new system that would be much more flexible than the current uh, approach. Whereas instead your water heater is in charge of its own heating Um, It's just checking with the grid to see whether it's a good time to to run or not. You might be thinking, okay, big whoop, a smart grid could change when my water heater turns on. Who cares? The thing is, when your water heater is heating up, it typically uses three times as much energy as your whole house. That's a lot. What if we could ensure that it mostly ran during times with high solar energy or wind? Andrew Giroux is an engineer with the startup, and he's working on just that. Here in their makeshift lab, a small windowless basement office, he's currently programming a much tinier version of your home water heater. So right here we've got a shelf, eight foot long shelf, with all these fluorescent green electric tea kettles all powered off of a single outlet. Giroux is rigging up tea kettles to test the complex software algorithms where your water heater can request energy from the grid, and the grid can tell your water heater, use this energy now. If you plug one tea kettle into your outlet, you're good. If you plug two tea kettles in, you will trip the breaker. And we're, gonna, and we're working to make it so that all 10 can get, get the electricity that they need without tripping the, the breaker. And it's getting hot and steamy in this tiny room, which means it's working. For the most part, there are still some bugs to be worked out. The University of Vermont professors received a competitive grant from the Department of Energy to study all this. And in a year or so, they're hoping to be ready to work with the utility Green Mountain Power to actually retrofit some water heaters in people's homes and test the software in the real world. 
That's Vermont Public Radio reporter Kathleen Masterson reporting for our series, The Big Switch, New England's Energy Moment. I'm talking with Prabhakar Singh, who's the director of the Center for Clean Energy Engineering at the University of Connecticut. And we're talking about some of these technologies, old technologies, new technologies. The water heater seems like a pretty old-fashioned technology, but essentially when she says in her story, uh, doctor, that we're storing electricity, what we're storing is energy. The energy that electricity can create is being stored in this water heater. It's just as good to store it there as any place else, right? Indeed. Indeed it is. As you know, there are many forms of energy uh, from uh, thermal, which is heat. Uh, you have mechanical uh, and, and electrical, uh, electrochemical, all, all kinds. And, uh, and, and we can store and use some of these uh, uh, forms of energy uh, for our sustainability, uh, for example. So if I use energy that is excess, that is free, uh, in uh, keeping uh, water hot, maintaining it for longer time, sure, that's, uh, that's a big plus. And, and it's a very efficient process. Uh, likewise, we can cool using the same excess electron. We can make ice and we can use that during daytime to uh, reduce the temperature or cool the house. And, and let's hear from uh, reporter Fred Bever. He's in, in Maine, and in Maine, in Booth Bay Harbor, they had a small pilot project that was looking at a number of different ways to conserve, to generate power, and also to utilize sources like these things called ice bears that the doctor was talking about. Here, here's Fred Bever. In winter, Booth Bay Harbor is practically a ghost town with about 2,000 residents hunkering down at the tip of a peninsula that fingers out from the mainland. But in warm weather, the region booms with tens of thousands of summer residents and vacationers. A first stop for many is T&D Variety, where you can gas up, enjoy a hot breakfast, and on a hot day like this, cool off inside. But instead of traditional energy-hogging air conditioning units, co-owner Deb Frankel says you can think the ice machines, or ice bears, as they're called. You have two units with tanks that build um, ice and when the ice builds it cools the water and you, and then you have cold air coming in. It's a pretty simple energy storage system. At night, when electricity is cheap and plentiful, two compressors out back freeze up a ton of ice, four tons actually, and then in the day fans blow air across the blocks and the cooled air flows in, reducing the need to blast the air conditioners when electricity is more in demand and more expensive. And I think there's a lot of success um, locally with the, I think a lot of people are pleased with it, and I love the concept. And it gets to that point that we heard from the earlier story, Doctor, where when there's energy available, use it. But when there's not energy available, don't use it. Essentially, trying to figure out ways to utilize the grid as it's, as it's meant to be used. Now, I think the problem is, is that we're using more energy all the time. Uh, you pointed me toward a, a, an interview with Bill Gates, of course, the multi-billionaire, richest man in the world, who's been making a lot of investments in this world of renewable energy. And he's been talking about this future in which he sees us using more energy, at least than we have in the past, making more stuff so we're going to need more energy. So the question is for us to continue to be sustainable. How are we going to cut down on the overall carbon footprint that we make whenever we create all this stuff and make all this energy that we've got to have? Uh, Bill Gates, uh, he is uh, uh, one of the smartest uh, investor, inventor uh, of our time, and uh, he has invested quite a bit in, in battery companies. And one of his statements has been that uh, all his uh, battery companies are not doing very well. 
uh, because of uh, challenges in material science and also the way we look at the business, the energy business, um, like uh, um, uh, um, it's uh, internet or, or uh, a software business. The return is two-year, three-year uh, time. But in energy, it takes a longer time to develop a mature product, to develop a breakthrough that will then get into batteries or, and or any other technique. I'm, I'm a proponent of accelerating all the development. I, I cannot uh, uh, sit and wait. Uh, I'd rather go back, go to my lab, and if there is a problem, I need to, to solve it, I need to be challenged and, and see the work in action, in, in operation. What I would like to see is some of these technologies being implemented in today's power plants and reducing Tesla's uh, uh, cost by a factor of two or three so that people like us can all afford uh, and, and uh, become efficient user uh, uh, environmentally as well. I should let you get back to the lab to work on that. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Prabhakar Singh from the University of Connecticut, the director of the Center for Clean Energy Engineering. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure again. Thank you. Coming up, meet the mysterious crew that hauls hundreds of pounds through the White Mountains to make your hike more pleasant. It's next. We want to share the love for podcasts from all over New England, so this week we're featuring Rumble Strip, Vermont. Host Erica Heilman has intimate conversations with people from all walks of life, and she takes her time. We love her interviews with private investigator and single mom Susan Randall and her dive into the tricky work of criminal defense. Erica also doesn't shy away from heavy topics like giant puppets and wild turkeys and middle school angst. Subscribe at rumblestripvermont.com. Maybe you're planning to get off the grid this Labor Day weekend and head to the mountains. A footpath in the forest may feel as far away from the world of human work as you can get, but clearing and maintaining that trail takes some serious muscle. And in the White Mountains, the men and women who do that work have quite the reputation. From New Hampshire Public Radio's podcast, Outside In, host Sam Evans-Brown has this tale of the most legendary trail crew this side of the Mississippi. When you walk on a trail in the woods, have you ever wondered, how did this get here? Am I actually following some sort of centuries-old Native American footpath, one that follows the easiest and most natural route? Surprise! You're not. This is the sound of a team of people who have carried hundreds of pounds of equipment over a mile into the woods in order to fix a hiking trail that is falling apart. They drill holes into a big boulder, probably the size of a refrigerator, and then hammer in wedges, slowly splitting the rock into nice, flat chunks. Next, they strap the rock chunk onto a zip line because the trail itself is actually 30 feet below the spot where they can get rocks from. It's a three-person job. One controls how high in the air the rock hangs, another lets it slide down along the zip line, and a third directs the whole show from below. Once the rock is down, a hole gets dug, the rock gets attached to a different kind of lever and pulley setup, and using a rock bar and lots of finagling, the rock gets dropped into place. All of that, maybe two or three hours of work for three people, for a single step in a stone staircase near a nice waterfall. People think these staircases occur naturally. 
This is Nova, which is not his real name. Everyone who does this work gets assigned a Woods name. His real name is Alex Mildy. He's in charge of this particular Appalachian Mountain Club work crew, which is working at a place called Champney Falls in New Hampshire's White Mountains. We've had people do that. They've been walking down our work, talking to their kid, and then we like, we're rolling around in the dirt, clearly putting in a staircase, and they're like, yes, honey, these steps were put here by God. This is actually the ultimate compliment to a trail builder, using natural materials taken from nearby. They're hoping their work will blend right in. And the trail makers themselves, just like their work, are practically invisible. So who does this job? Who are these trail gods? To talk about how trails are made, I'm going to talk about what is, as far as I can tell from my corner of the world, the most legendary trail crew around. The Appalachian Mountain Club's professional trail crew in the White Mountains. Among themselves, they're also known as the TFC. So TFC. TFC uh, came around. No one really knows where it came from. It came around in the 70s sometime. Stands for a trail crew. Yeah, we like to say if uh, you're telling your grandma asks what it stands for, you just say trail fixing crew. So what's with that name? This is where the mythology of this crew comes in. The first thing you might hear about the TFC is about their legendary toughness. Um, on Monday, everyone had at least probably about 150 pounds coming up this trail. Um, so that's definitely on the heavier side. That incredible understatement comes from Switchback, real name Ashley Fife, the current trail master. They carry these absurd loads on pack boards, which look something like a bed frame with shoulder straps. What's the, what's the craziest load you've ever seen someone carry on one of those? I saw a pack go in and uh, we had, it was all steel, so we knew the weight of everything on it. And I think it came out to be about 270 pounds. Jesus. Now, I will say, no one actually weighed that backpack, and someone else on the same crew told me he thought it was 205 pounds. But regardless, that's crazy. Some crew members actually fight over who gets to carry the heaviest gear. What's that feel like on your shoulders? Um, it's, it's crippling. It... <laughs> Aesop says learning that you can carry more than you thought is a crucible that everyone on the crew has to pass through. You're, uh, you're going you have to develop a definitely strong mental attitude and a mindset to just kind of break through those pain barriers and just keep on walking one foot in front of the other. Apart from really heavy packs, the crew also hikes really far and really fast. They do this thing called patrolling. Uh, patrols are the first uh, two to three weeks of the season, and it's where we hike 12 to 22 miles a day. They're responsible for around 365 miles of trails, clearing away trees that have blown down over the winter and hoeing out drainage ditches that have filled in with leaves and dirt. And in part because if a chainsaw breaks down when you're 15 miles into a 20-mile hike, you're sunk. And in part because of this tradition of brawn and perseverance, they clear the trees by hand with axes. So it's just like hike, 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 chop, 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 ho, ho, ho. Yep, exactly. Chop, chop, so 20, chop, 22 miles in a day you'll do with, with stopping to do blowdowns. Yep, yep, five days a week. You know, they just used to do insane things. That's Joan Chevalier. She was the first woman to be on the crew back in 1978. 
she remembers the crew had to rebuild a steep trail on the region's highest peak, Mount Washington, which meant carrying massive logs on their backs down from the summit across what is basically a boulder field called the Alpine Garden. They all dressed up in costumes. <laughs> and they packed these ridiculous logs across the Alpine Garden. And so that was just kind of one example. It's almost like they're superhumans. Yeah, there was kind of this mystique about them that they, um, there was kind of this swagger about them. <laughs> That they were better, you know, they were one of the better trail crews and they could do anything. And, you know, they they ate five times the normal human beings. Everything was sort of supersized. <laughs> I heard a lot of these stories from current and past members of the TFC while working on this story. Crew members deciding to hike to their next project site, which meant going 27 miles over Mount Washington, which is one of the most inhospitable peaks in the country, in the middle of the night. Crews loaded down with so much gear that they couldn't stand, or so weighed down that they tipped over in a river and struggled to get out from under their packs. Or this one gruesome story of a crew member who slipped while swinging an axe at a fallen tree trunk and opened a flap of flesh on his knee that his friend said looked like a slab of raw meat. He lost a liter of blood, but still finished chopping out his blowdown tree and then hiked more than five miles out of the woods under his own power. And having been told these stories, even then, it felt like TFC members were holding back, like they couldn't tell me their best stories. But these stories of pure, astonishing physicality are just one part of what makes the crew legendary. Reason number two for the TFC legend? They get up to some serious shenanigans. Some of these stories have become part of the lore of the White Mountains. An example? Back in the 50s, some of the kids on the crew heard that President Eisenhower was coming to visit the state. Bob Watts was on the crew the summer this happened. There were two or three of the trail crew and two or three of the hut crew who combined their talents and actually were successful in putting a goatee on the old man of the mountains. The old man was a famous rock formation in the White Mountains, which, from a distance, looked like the profile of a face. It was one of New Hampshire's most well-known icons until it fell down back in 2003. These kids from the trail crew somehow managed to tie bushes to his chin, which is 40 feet below the edge of the cliff that was the top of his face, a cliff which is hundreds of feet tall. All of this just to give him a funny little beard. So these guys really, for almost a half a century, went into hiding and never would admit their uh, participation in this shenanigan. It seems like each crew gets up to some sort of foolishness. Crew members camping out in the woods during huge storms, Crew members building a fake bird's nest, complete with hard-boiled eggs with spots drawn on them, and convincing passing hikers this was the nest of the rare alpine duck. But you wouldn't mistake them for your typical group of college kids in the woods. And this is a third reason the TFC is legendary. Their look. Members of the crew don't look like earth-loving hippies. They're like filthy, muscled punk rockers. To match the mystique they've cultivated over the years, the crew has adopted a certain style, mostly mohawks, which, according to Nova, is more aerodynamic? My theory is it's also a radiator. 
So you get to shave the hair on the sides, so that allows a lot of heat to kind of radiate out and you evaporate. Then you have the vein of hair coming down the center that condenses the, condenses the sweat coming off your head and then recirculates it. And getting grimy as expected. It's pretty much a one shower a week kind of group. John Lamana, a crew member from back in the 70s, puts it this way. Any trail crew guy worth his he would rather have mushrooms growing out of his underwear, if in fact he wore underwear, than he would ever be caught with his axe dull or not ready to go. You see what I'm saying? Maybe to you this sounds a little bit fratty. And it's definitely the case that most of the members of the trail crew are guys. But the only time I really notice, like, I'm a girl is when hikers will pass and make, like, sexist comments. This is Anna Malvin, a.k.a. 10-Gage, who's doing her first year on this year's crew. I'm like, oh, why don't you get the guys up there to help you? (laughs) And stuff like that. But other than that, like, I think the crew's really cool because they try really hard to not make a difference and you try to work your hardest and as long as you're working towards your 100%, that's like all they expect. You know, AMC was one of the places where finally you could sort of eventually, you know, with the trail crew, that, that women and men were equal and it didn't matter, everybody did what they could do and uh, made a contribution. Which is not to say this has always been a place that a gender studies major would have 100% approved of. For instance, when Joan Chevalier got onto the crew, she had to become one of the guys because the lunchtime conversation wasn't about to get any more delicate. So if there was a cute girl on the trail, one of them would say, yell, yell, give me a peeler. And you, a, peeler. a peeler is a thing used to take bark off of logs. This was code for cute girl on the trail. Give me a peeler and all the guys would come out of the woods to come look at the female. <laughs> we didn't have a, we did not have a male equivalent of that, I have to say. <laughs> Maybe there's one now, I should ask. Yeah, you should ask. I, I forgot to ask. But gender aside, first years on the crew are always at the bottom of the food chain. Well, the trail crew's been around for almost 100 years. Um, So there's like things that they do um, that are just like really ingrained. Um, I think as a first year, you don't really get hazed, but- She says there are little things, like first years having to carry out the crew's trash, and this. We had to take a a test (laughs) in the beginning, just as a a joke. It was like, what color this person's tidy whities or (laughs) stuff like that. Um, We're getting like, like little balls thrown at us. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So it's all in good fun. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is sort of difficult to sometimes see the line between what's hazing and what's bonding. This is Panesh Shaw, who was on the trail crew in 2001 and 2002. You know, like, I think a, a good example is like one of the things that they do is, um, you're, you know, you're supposed to always keep track of your axe when you're on trail crew. Panesh once left his axe on a workbench while he ate dinner, and two upper year members, including one who would later become his wife, hid his axe behind a shed. You know, that, I think that that's probably you know that there's a, that there's some element of hazing there, but there's also, you know, there is at least some some purpose to that. Um, right, you're being instilled you know, with a value. I don't think you'd be able to get that quality of work product or just 
the, the amount of labor that the crew puts in for the amount they get paid, unless there was some other benefit, right? And that benefit is pride. Pride and cohesion and friendship. One crew member told me it was like being in an Air Force squadron or an infantry platoon. Another I interviewed said everything felt right when she was on trail crew, like she had figured out what was important. And when she came back to college, it was like everyone else was still so confused. This, this trail crew job, this is not something that they just drop in out of the sky and work for a summer in the woods in the White Mountains. They might think that way when they plan to get here, but they find out quite soon that it's different. Ben English was on the crew in the 50s. To this day, he and John Lamana still hike up to visit today's trail crew at their various projects out in the woods. I talked to the two of them by a waterfall, near where the crew was completing a staircase. You could tell they were incredibly proud of their time on crew and of the work that the crew does. You could also tell that they were deeply uncomfortable with talking about this very special kind of secret part of their life on the radio. Um, could tell them about it. Tony, can the, in the fire pond there, we could tell them that we can't tell them that no, story. Man. No, I don't think we I know we can't. We can't tell them that Because Tony could still be alive. So there's, so there's stories that, that are uh, too good for radio. Oh, yeah. Oh, we have to maintain a, a, a certain mystique about us, right? I mean, we don't want the whole friggin' world knowing how good this is, because they'll all want to do it. You get this shut off. I can shut it off if you want. Well, yeah, because I, I, I think that... We don't want it And with that, we cut off the tape. I guess if you want to hear these stories, you might have to just join up yourself, if you think you can hack it. That's from the New Hampshire Public Radio podcast, Outside In. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. This is the fifth episode of our new show, and we'd love your feedback. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Or send an email to next at wnpr.org. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Broadcasting Network, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.